Welcome to the HealthSpan Project, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn science and biology that affect longevity and quality of life so you can become more confident, intentional, and proactive about your health. Remember, it's not just about how long you live, but how well you live. I'm your host, Dr. Khan. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the HealthSpan Project. I am so glad that you're here with me today. Before I get started with today's episode, I do want to remind you to listen to the one prior to this to get a little bit of a background of the pathophysiology of insulin resistance, as it'll really help to understand why we use certain biomarkers to test for insulin resistance, prediabetes, and diabetes. It'll make a lot more sense. So if you haven't listened to that yet, I would highly recommend that you do. All right, so moving on to today, we're going to be talking about biomarkers to test to figure out if you're insulin resistant, pre-diabetic, or getting into the realm of diabetes. First and foremost to start out with, it's the hemoglobin A1c that a lot of people might already be familiar with. So before I dive into that, think about this analogy first. If you're taking a road trip and you're driving on a said road, if somebody told you that a few miles down the road, you're going to be encountering a bridge that's broken, and obviously you're not going to be able to continue your journey, not only that, you might actually be caught by surprise and then obviously fall through and nobody wants to do that. Point is that that information would cause you to change course and find an alternative route so that you never have to encounter this problem to begin with. Keeping that analogy in the back of your mind, let's start with hemoglobin A1c. So the idea is that year after year, a lot of people get screened for diabetes using by the use of hemoglobin A1c. And this is a blood marker that helps to uh, stratify you on a scale of pre-diabetes or diabetes. What that means is that year after year, if your number comes back 5.7 or below, you're told everything is good, don't worry about it, you're fine and dandy, you have a quote-unquote clean bill of health. Say that happens year after year, and then one year, all of a sudden you're told, well, you're now pre-diabetic. And you're surprised because for four several years, you've been told that everything is fine. How did this creep up on you all of a sudden? Well, this is where the danger of as long as a value on a lab report turns up black, that you're good to go until that value turns red is when you need to worry about something. This is especially troublesome when it comes to a marker like A1C. Because here's the thing, your A1C can be trending up steadily year after year, but until it turns 5.7 or above, most people are told everything is fine, don't worry about it. But here's the thing, if you knew that you're on the trajectory of prediabetes, you'd likely want to do something about it. And the problem lies with how or what the A1C tests for. The A1C tests for the average of blood sugar over the course of three months. And the way that it detects that is it detects the glucose that's stuck on the outside of your red blood cells. And your red blood cells live about 120 days. So testing this marker every three months gives you a good average of what your sugars have been like. Because the higher the amount of blood sugar you have, the higher your red blood cells are going to get stuck with it on top of their surface. So I hope that that makes sense as to why you would get then an average of three months worth of glucose, whether you had, you know, consistently high sugars or that you have meals that spike your sugars really high. 
Either way, it gives you an average of your blood sugars over the last three months. So it misses the whole pathology of insulin resistance, and it only gives you information as to how your blood sugars are doing. And if you have listened to the previous episode, then you understand that before blood sugars even become abnormal, your body's trying to compensate to keep that blood sugar as normal as possible by pumping out a lot of insulin. So hyperinsulinemia is that first indicator that you're becoming insulin resistant and you're on your path to prediabetes or diabetes. And the A1C marker, as good as it is, especially for blood sugar regulation, if you're already in the realm of prediabetes and diabetes, it doesn't tell you anything about what is happening before that. So if you solely rely on that marker, you are missing the fact that you're becoming insulin resistant, if you are, that is. So how do we figure that out? This next one called a two-hour glucose tolerance test with insulin is your gold standard of figuring out if you're insulin resistant or not. It is very similar to what a woman takes when she's pregnant to figure out if she's developing gestational diabetes. But the difference is that this two-hour glucose tolerance test also tests for insulin levels. The way that it works is that it's a two-hour test and it's divided into three intervals, a zero minute mark, a 60 minute mark, and a 90 or 120 minute mark, depending on certain labs. So you're fasting at zero minutes and your blood is drawn to check for insulin as well as glucose level. After that's drawn, you are given a 75 gram of glucola, which is pretty much straight up carbohydrates, 75 grams of it, and you chug that. Once that's done at the 60 minute mark, again, your glucose is measured via a blood draw as well as uh, insulin level. And the same thing is then done at the 90 minute mark as well, or 120 minute mark, depending again on the labs. So what we're testing for here is to see what your insulin and glucose levels were while you were fasting, how high did the insulin level go at a 60 minute mark after you had taken that 75 gram carbohydrate, and is your blood sugar normalized by the 90 minute mark and what your insulin level is at that time. So for a person who is not insulin resistant, their insulin level at fasting is going to be quite low. And at the 60 minute mark, sure, their blood sugar is going to rise because, well, they took 75 grams of uh, glucola and their insulin level will rise. And then by the 90 minute mark, you would expect that blood sugar to be normalized by that time and insulin to come back down to very low levels. That is what the curve would be for somebody that is not insulin resistant. Somebody who is insulin resistant would, or at least the very beginnings of it, would at least have normal blood sugars by the end of this test as well, just like a person that doesn't have insulin resistance. However, what they will show is that not only did the insulin levels maybe start out higher at fasting than the other individual, and or it required a lot more insulin to normalize the blood sugar from that 60 minute mark to 90 minute mark. And that is a first indicator that you're becoming insulin resistant because that hyperinsulinemia is giving it away. And that is what gets missed with A1C. It does not, hemoglobin A1C, that it does not tell you anything about what the insulin is doing. And if you remember from the previous episode, hyperinsulinemia is that first step of insulin resistance. So the two-hour glucose tolerance test along with insulin levels 
is truly the gold standard, and we recommend it to all of our patients, especially if their hemoglobin A1C come back at about 5.3 or above. If they're already in the pre-diabetic or diabetic range, you don't need to measure the two-hour glucose tolerance because they're already way past that. However, at about a 5.3, you want to know that if they're becoming insulin resistant or not. Now, this test can take two hours, and you have to stay at the laboratory to do that. A lot of people don't want to do it, both because of time commitment and it is pretty arduous that you have to kind of sit for the two hours not doing much because you don't want to, you know, take those stressful calls that are coming from work or pacing back and forth because all of that alters the blood glucose levels in your body and it will mess with the test pretty much. So the next best thing then to do is the third test called HOMA-IR, H-O-M-A-I-R. And what that is, is that you take a fasting insulin level as well as a fasting glucose level and you put it in this equation that spits out a number. And if that number is greater than two or at least close to two, that is your indicator that you're becoming insulin resistant. It's not as accurate, obviously, as a measured two-hour glucose tolerance test that gives you a postprandial insulin and sugar level, postprandial meaning after a meal. However, it is better than not having anything at all. So these three biomarkers are really very helpful in not only telling you if you're at the beginning stages of diabetes or if you are already pre-diabetic or diabetic. And kind of like that analogy we talked about in the beginning of this episode, that if you already know that you're headed down a a path that will have a broken bridge, you'd want to do something about it and you'd want to change course, hopefully never having to encounter that to begin with, right? This is where these biomarkers help and that two-hour glucose tolerance test or HOMA-IR will tell you if you're already on that path. A1C at 5.7 or above will give you pre-diabetes range and by the time you're 6.5 or above, you're already in the diabetes range. So what are the some of the drawbacks of any of these tests? Specifically for A1C, the hemoglobin A1C, you cannot rely on this test if you have blood loss anemia, meaning you're anemic due to some kind of blood loss, or if you have certain types of thalassemias, which are types of anemias, but they're genetic. So if you have any of those two, you cannot rely on this test because remember, this test heavily relies on the amount of red blood cells in your body. With any of these types of anemias, you don't have the appropriate amount of red blood cells, so you can't extrapolate the correct amount of blood sugar that's been circulating in your body. I hope that that makes sense. So having said that, most people, the general population, isn't anemic and uh, thalassemias are more on the rarer side too. So A1C is a good test for screening for diabetes or prediabetes. However, if you want to go a step further when it comes to health span and longevity, you want to be as proactive as possible and you want to detect things as early as possible. And this is where knowing if you're insulin resistance gives you a lot more bang for your buck than just relying on the A1C. Because here's the thing, if we keep waiting and waiting and we develop prediabetes or diabetes, now you are acting as if you're reactive. You're waiting until the disease has already occurred to do something about it. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't. If anything, if somebody learns that they have prediabetes or diabetes, go for it. The idea is to try to do things to actually reverse that process as quickly and as efficiently as possible. But it's what they say, a, you know, what, what is that saying? Um, prevention 
is better than cure or a pound of prevention is better than cure, something like that. And that's where catching yourself at the point of insulin resistance is far better than letting yourself develop prediabetes or diabetes. So say these numbers come back abnormal, that you're in the pre-diabetic range or diabetic range. What can you do about it? First and foremost, you want to try to make your muscle cells as efficient as possible to clear that blood glucose and dispose of it in your muscle cells. Again, we talked about this in the previous episode that muscle is a primary site of glucose disposal. The biggest thing that it does for us is it gives us a place to dispose of that blood sugar in the form of glycogen into the muscle cells other than actually utilizing that sugar for energy. If your muscle cells aren't efficiently doing that or if you don't have enough of muscle mass on you, then you don't have anywhere to put this blood sugar. So this is where zone two exercise comes in. Zone two exercise is doing cardiovascular exercise in the zone where you are at the 60 to 70% of your max heart rate. Now, ideally, you'd want to have your max heart rate measured via VO2 max. However, not everybody wants to do that. And there's, you know, ways to extrapolate it. Obviously, measured is better than calculated. But say you haven't had it measured, how do you calculate that? You can calculate your max heart rate by taking your age and subtracting it by 220. That's supposedly your max heart rate. From that, you can take 60 to 70% of that and know that that's the range that you want to be in for your cardiovascular exercise to make your muscle cells more efficient in taking up that glucose and decreasing insulin resistance. You want to do that at least 45 minutes every day for about four or five days a week. This Zone two has been proven to make your muscle cells more efficient for glucose uptake in many studies done in the sports medicine world. Even the most accomplished athletes spend most of their training. So 80% of most of their training is done in zone two. 20% is done in zone five, otherwise known as HIT. There's misconception where people think that if they don't come out of the gym feeling like they are sweating beyond measure or like that they kicked butt and they just don't have any more fuel left in them, that that is the only possible way of feeling like you actually quote unquote worked out. That is far from the truth. Many a times people are overworking themselves. Really, you want to actually be in zone two where most of this efficiency is taking place when it comes to your muscle cells. The more you make your cells more efficient, the more the blood glucose regulation harmonizes with that and the lower your insulin requirement goes. So zone two is a great, great way of improving your blood sugar levels. And this helps you reverse prediabetes or diabetes. Zone two is also really great in utilizing fat oxidation for energy, meaning utilizing stored fat for fuel. So it really helps in both terms, meaning it not only helps you get metabolically healthier, meaning getting your blood glucose disposed into the muscle cells, and it's utilizing stored fat to use as energy. So it's leaning you out as well. So it's a really great uh, way to improve your metabolic health as well as your physical health as well. The other thing is to lower your carbohydrate intake. Now again, 
previously we talked about when you're already insulin resistant and you're taking in all of these carbohydrates, especially simple carbs and carbohydrates in the form of fructose, all of that has to go somewhere, especially if your muscles aren't being able to take it up. And all of that is going into the liver where a lot of it is also being converted into fat. Lipogenesis is what we talked about. So if you lower your carbohydrate intake while you're doing zone two exercise, you're giving your body a chance to not only catch up and get those muscle cells to become more efficient, but also they don't have, the body's not having that great load of the extra carbohydrate that's coming in where it doesn't know what to do with it other than to just shove it into the liver and create fat out of it. So lowering your carbohydrate intake and zone two exercise can absolutely help reverse insulin resistance, prediabetes, or even diabetes. Now, a third way is increasing muscle mass meaning increasing the reservoir that you have that disposes blood glucose from your bloodstream. So not only do you want your muscle cells to be efficient in doing that, which zone two exercise is helping you with, but having more of it in your body gives you a better tub to put all of this blood glucose in. So if you think about your muscle cells as, or your muscles in general, as like a reservoir or like a tub that kind of, you know, keeps all this blood glucose in, the bigger your tub is, the better or the more space you have to actually dispose of this blood glucose. Now, obviously, you know, you don't want to go crazy with it where, you know, you don't need to be a bodybuilder to have the adequate amount of space to dispose of your blood sugar, but more what's ideal for you, for your body mass. So weight resistance training, a little bit of hypertrophy can actually help with that. So muscle mass, meaning muscle size, muscle efficiency, as well as lowering your carbohydrate intake can all help with reversing insulin resistance, as well as prediabetes and diabetes. Now, sometimes the diabetes has gone so far that you do need at least temporarily some pharmaceutical measures to try to keep that sugar as stable as possible because out-of-control blood sugars have detrimental effects such as diabetic ketoacidosis, which can be uh, ultimately deadly if not treated. So this is where pharmaceuticals do end up helping. However, we have come so far now with what we have at our disposal that using insulin to treat type 2 diabetes isn't necessarily the only way to treat. If anything, there are so many more modalities that are oral when it comes to uh, medications that using insulin as a way to treat diabetes is probably not the best way. Now, sometimes a degree of diabetes is high enough where you do need pharmaceuticals to at least temporize blood sugars because when you let blood sugars go very high or let them go untreated, it can result into something called diabetic ketoacidosis, which can be detrimental to your health, if not deadly. So all of this to say is it is better to get an early start and early control on this pathway to diabetes because diabetes in and of itself is very, very harmful to quality of life, meaning health span. It causes nerve damage, kidney damage, vascular damage, so much so to the point that some people lose their limbs because diabetes has caused such harm to their vasculature that the blood flow gets poor where their limbs start to die. And the only way to make sure that it doesn't cause uh, systemic infection like sepsis, they need to be amputated. So all this to say is that 
Diabetes can be very, very harmful and detrimental to health span. It can really decrease your quality of life. It is very expensive to have uh, when it comes to medications and all the other support that you will need. So earlier the start, earlier the detection, keeping as far away from this chronic disease as possible is definitely the best approach. And that is what we do for our patients. If you're looking for doctors who are into this early detection mindset, into, you know, focus on longevity and health span, and you happen to be in the Northern Virginia area, please look us up, uh, mosaictheorymd.com. We'd love to work with you. All right, that's a wrap for today. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the HealthSpan Project, and I cannot wait to see you next week on the next episode. So don't forget to tune in. All right, take care. See you on the next one. If you liked what you heard on this episode, please do me a favor, share it with your friends and family and help them become more confident, intentional, and proactive with their health. They will thank you for it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode. Disclaimer, information shared on this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. 